Welcome to Procurement Reimagined, a podcast by Gatekeeper. We believe traditional procurement has had its day, the world is changing, and our industry needs to change with it. On the podcast, we share the best practices to help you streamline your procurement processes, navigate vendor onboarding, and ultimately get the most value out of your vendor contracts. I'm your host, Daniel Barnes. Could you just explain what you do as though you're speaking to a five-year-old? Yeah, so I have few different roles. So one of them is as a trainer. So I teach attorneys and contract managers and procurement professionals how to draft and negotiate contracts about technology, including AI. So we run you know, in-house trainings for legal departments and procurement departments. We do public trainings that are on the webinars and we have this masterclass. So I do all that teaching and I actually teach a similar course at UC Berkeley Law School. The sort of foundation of doing all that work is that I also practice law in my own firm called Sycamore Legal in San Francisco and we negotiate these kinds of deals. So we draft and negotiate contracts about technology. And then finally, I serve as an expert witness. I testify in cases where I sort of call it software license has gone bad, where there's reason that you might bring in an expert to help the court understand the business practices behind the license, you know, what madness might have driven the drafter of the license to write this, that, or the other thing. So that's sort of the spectrum of the different tasks I do. Maybe not quite at the level a five-year-old could understand, but hopefully an eight-year-old. There's really two parts of this likely future story, and there's a, it's really the short term and the long term. In the short term, it looks like artificial intelligence will make contracting professionals more efficient. It'll be easier to do the job. We can do it faster. Hopefully that means that we can get more contracts done in a shorter period of time. It may mean that lawyers can serve more clients for less money. And I don't mean that the lawyers will necessarily earn much. It means the lawyers won't necessarily earn less, that they can serve more people, possibly even earn more. So it's a relatively happy story of improvement in the short run. In the long run, it gets more complicated as the tools get better and it becomes easier to to use AI to draft and negotiate contracts, you start to sort of rock the fundamentals of the business, both the practice of law and the work of procurement professionals and contract managers, because it becomes possible for more and more people to do it. And you can look at it as artificial intelligence taking our job, and that's not necessarily the wrong way to look at it, but maybe a better way to look at it is artificial intelligence makes it possible for an ever larger population of people to do what we do, because the tools make it so much easier. And there you could see a very fundamental long-term change. I think artificial intelligence could impact the attorney's monopoly. The idea that only attorneys legally can do this type of work, it's already under some pressure. There are already changes in jurisdictions in the United States and the United Kingdom allowing non-attorneys to own law firms. You may get to the point where it's just silly to say only these people can perform these services. So you could have a sort of dissolution of our professions. And that's not necessarily a happy story. For many, that's very troubling. You could have no particular need for very highly trained experts doing contracting because so many people can do it. It doesn't necessarily mean we're all out of jobs. There's a lot of history of people specializing in new areas and picking up new tasks and in fact expanding what their profession can do. 
But that fundamental change, that idea that just about anybody could do a contract, that may come and that is going to have a powerful impact on the professions of procurement professionals, attorneys, and contract managers. And that's why I'm very happy if we record when we did, David, because that was a really good way to set this up and consider this. It's a couple of points. I can almost imagine that anyone who is legally qualified, and what I mean by that is they're not me. So I have a couple of law degrees and that, that's great. That's good as a certificate on the wall. But those that have gone beyond that, so the US perhaps they've done the bar in the UK, they've done the LPC or they've now whatever qualifying methods they've followed. That could almost sound quite scary that if they spent all this time getting, going through these uh, educational vocational training to then in theory have someone who has done nowhere near that or has no knowledge of the law or little law or less knowledge than them take on similar or the same work as them and i can just almost imagine the legal community in places just being up in arms that could be coming in their way it's quite scary in some ways it's frightening and there's i think a lot of people out there that are sort of sugarcoating it and trying to deliver a happy message as i said i do think there's a relatively happy message in the short run in that we'll maintain our block on the profession and we'll do this work more efficiently but you have to always question any monopoly. People with certain training can do things. So I think it's silly to imagine that it can't happen. And I think artificial intelligence is a very natural route for eroding this monopoly. The flip side, though, for people who have put all that time and training in, which certainly includes me, is not to just sort of then give up and say, well, the profession is ruined. I mean, if you have special knowledge, special expertise, there's probably a place for it. And we've seen this with prior waves of automation over and over again. The automation destroys jobs and creates new jobs. And in many cases, you have more new jobs, but you have to train for them. So attorneys and other professionals who are very trained to become very expert may need to say, okay, how do I apply my special knowledge to the new world and come up with new ways? There's already a fair amount of talk about the prompt engineers, about becoming the expert at getting the right information from the AI because of your tremendous you know, combined knowledge of the law and of prompt crafting. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's sort of the least creative thing we can come up with. It's probably going to be, you know, eight other new specialties that you and I can't even think of right now because we sort of got to get our hands dirty with the new way of doing work for it even to become apparent what the opportunity is. I think the special training may be exploitable in new ways and possibly better, more interesting work than we had before, but there is no use sugarcoating. It is a threat to at least the current way of working. When I compare it to procurement professionals, you can look at fundamentally the entire life cycle of procurement, whether it's you know, finding new vendors to work with, to negotiate with, and then to do with the contracts with. There's steps, either all of the steps or a majority of those steps that could potentially be replaced by some form of automation, probably with a foundation of artificial intelligence doing that thing. And that sounds scary. But like when I look at this from a procurement angle and the, what are procurement typically involved in commercial contracts, the risk can be quite severe in places. Do you always need a lawyer? Let's just use that term to encapsulate qualified legal professional here. Do you always need a lawyer to review those contracts? Well, arguably not. And a lot of organizations already have contract managers or procurement teams that are empowered through playbooks or some form of guidance in whatever form that comes. This surely will enable legal to completely, not necessarily break, break apart from procurement, but it almost feels like 
procurement isn't necessarily a sexy area for lawyers to get involved in. And if they can put in place guardrails and guidance and enable procurement to go off and do all of these things on their own, that surely feels like a win for both procurement who don't have to get tied into the bottlenecks that sometimes, and maybe unfairly, are ad here that legal get categorized as creating and for legal they can step away and to your point you mentioned like when these new waves of automation occur or new technologies come into place there's normally some form of job losses this could be one of them or task losses maybe a better way of thinking about it it could then let them go on to those new tasks or those new areas of expertise that we can't yet even like you said foresee that's right and in fact that exercise of sort of automating legal and making the content and knowledge of the legal department more easily available to procurement. That's one of the first things that's happened in the artificial yeah. intelligence, in the application of AI to procurement. So there are systems out there now that will do things like, you know, they'll do an AI automated review of the contract and they will reference back a playbook that came from the legal department. So they will note issues and not at a level of reliability yet where a human doesn't review. We're not really there yet, but they will note issues and they will suggest alternate clauses, alternate solutions that the legal department has put together from their playbook. And so in a way, you have kind of created a robot version of the whole legal department that the procurement people can get access to faster without, you know, having to pick up the phone and wait for the lawyer to get back from lunch or whatever it might be. So that has begun to happen. And I think that will happen more and more. And a lot of the, I think, better AI solutions out there, you could call it curated AI. Either an expert, you know, has been brought in to say, these are the choices that the AI should favor, or the legal department has sort of input its own playbook. It does sort of leave the question, well, then if there's much less work for the legal department, what are they doing? And really the company has two choices, hire fewer of them, which is worrying for the lawyers, or see what other interesting things that they could do to add greater value. And I think we'll see both things happen. Yeah. There's a couple of interesting points. And I'm going to ask, just I'm going to experiment with this question here, David, because I think when I'm making some assumptions for the listener's sake here. When people hear AI, I do think that they're now drawn into AI being associated with chat GPT as sort of the model. And it's one, it's a large language model, it's just one small facet. When you're talking about the improvements that AI can potentially bring to contracting as a whole, are you talking about utilizing chat GPT or you're talking about using other models, other processes that emanate from AI? Yeah, good question. Actually, I'm glad you made that distinction. So the example I've just given you of these systems that will do things like analyze a contract and suggest alternate language, maybe from a playbook, that's not chat GPT. That's not generative AI. And maybe a good sort of line to draw is between generative AI and other AI. We can get into complicated questions about the role of machine learning, but chat GPT generates new text in a way that is weirdly human seeming. And that's it's not exactly new, but it's newly burst upon us because of the public release of ChatGPT. So all kinds of other AI systems we've been using for a decade that do things like, you know, analyze a huge set of contracts. You know, we've got 10,000 contracts and we want to know what kind of indemnity terms we tend to have. And there's AI systems that can do that. And really, I actually, in, in talking to audience on another topic, on how to do contracts 
for procurement of AI itself, one of the things I say yeah. is most AI is just software. It's not necessarily wildly different from your software deals. It's when you get into generative AI that we start to introduce all kinds of new issues and problems. And ChatGPT is an example of that. That was a good explanation. I've seen quite a, and the reason I asked you that, I'm chuckling to myself a little bit, is that I've seen so many people sort of criticize ChatGPT for not being able to almost do these things around contracts, especially in the procurement community, which is like, oh, I fed in these contract terms that were online and maybe as an, a EULA or something for a software company. I asked ChatGPT to, to review it and it failed. It told me like some really stupid stuff about it. And it's just not designed to do that. It's there to, like you said, create something new. And it's very hard for it to review something, especially if you haven't even given it anything to review against. And there are solutions headed in that direction of taking a, an engine like GPT, the underlying engine for chat yeah. GPT. So, so to make that effective for legal work, you've got to put some additional training on top of it, some additional programming. And there's solutions out there that do that. And when we get really useful, you know, personal legal assistance that can help us draft contracts, for instance, it will be, I think, in that direction. It won't be chat GPT. Yes. It'll be someone who's built on top of GPT or on top of Anthropics Claude or one of these other engines. Right now, even those systems, they're not going to draft great contracts for you. They're not going to give you really good, I've tested them. They're not going to give you really good feedback. You don't have to double check. They may catch some things that you didn't catch, but we, you know, other forms of AI can do that too. But we're silly if we look for that right now from large language models. And really the thing to understand too about large language models is it may sound like you're talking to Mr. Data. It may sound like there's a real set of thinking going on there. But at a fundamental level, they're stringing language together. They're stringing you know, one word after the other. And that's why it can lead off in bizarre directions because it doesn't have the same kind of logic that the human mind applies. And so you can't demand of it that it does things like effective contract analysis. It may get there, but right now we're pretty far from that. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think I was listening to a Lex Friedman podcast with Stephen Wolfram, and he was explaining how the generation of text works. And effectively, it's just based on an algorithm, an equation, which determines the probability of the next word forming. And I think there's a very good Wikipedia article that I read that almost shows that you can do this based on a book, any book, and you can take the number of characters and by a certain iteration, you will start predicting it yourself based on the letters and word. It's quite incredible. When you see it like that, it suddenly hits you that it probably can't draft a contract or review a contract for you perfectly because it is still quite simple yet brilliant in its output. One other thing you said, David, was around job losses. And I kind of want to explore this and maybe I will set you up slightly here. There's someone in the current world, Dr. Eloise Epstein, she's a partner at Kearney, and she wrote maybe in 2018 and about like the future of procurement. And when she talks about it, and this is maybe one thing I'll contextualize, when she talks about procurement, she's not just talking about sourcing, which I think is fundamentally where a lot of people's minds go when they talk about procurement. She's talking about the entire life cycle. So encapsulate contract management, pre and post signature there. I'm just trying to record a stat and I may be slightly off here, but it was something like she foresees a world in probably the next decade, even with the iteration that AI has had recently of the procurement workforce being reduced by probably up to 80% of workers. And I know from experience that when I've brought in tech that I've not had to hire and that was pre AI, right? When as soon as you've got something that can slightly automate parts of the process or data admin is done, you can really reduce the hands doing the work. Is that something, do you think it'll be 
that severe for let's say legal professionals of lawyers or people like myself a contract manager working in procurement can you see that the losses could be like that i think i have to say the losses could be like that so it sounds like what she's doing is extrapolating forward she's looking at the tasks she's a futurist yeah and she's doing her analysis by extrapolation she's looking at the tasks that we currently do and looking at the technology's ability to do them and saying probably relatively reasonably, well, we only need, you know, 20% of the staff That's right. to do what's left. I don't find it improbable. I, again, I don't really see it in the next 10 years. And one of the reasons is that as amazingly fast as technology moves, adoption of technology moves slower. It, you still have to yeah. build systems around it and Companies have to get comfortable, and then it's a major investment to adopt it. So I see a slow path. But then the question is, as you get a little bit further out, does her prediction start to turn out? And this gets back to something I was saying at the beginning. Yes, but there's the prediction is extrapolating based on what's currently known. What is not currently known is what the other activities are that surround the technology that we might not ever have been able to think of. I mean, I'll give you the example of you know, the rise of, let's say, steam power, 1800 yeah. plus, for a, it put the weavers out of work. So you had these steam powered looms. It didn't overall reduce employment in the long run. You had all these new jobs that were created. There were factory foremen and then there were supply positions. And there's all this sort of new work that was that surrounded the rise of these factories that was unimaginable. So you could easily say in 1790 that the weavers are doomed and get it right, but you don't necessarily know what else is going to happen. One of the questions is, as the technology creates new jobs, who gets them? Is it the old professionals? I mean, the weavers were largely eliminated and it was other people who got the new jobs that were created. Are the new opportunities going to land in the hands of procurement professionals? Another example is bank tellers. You know, people thought when the bank tellers, when ATMs came out, automatic teller machines, we would have no bank tellers. I read recently there's more now per capita than in 1970 before the ATMs hey, wow. came out. Because they started doing different things. So there's an example where the existing professional staff did take over the new tasks. So predicting the future is really hard. She followed the trends in an intelligent yes. way. Never know what else is going to interfere and lead us down a different path. You have to be very brave, don't you? Predict the future in that sense. It really does feel like, and I almost think everyone would say this at every pivotal technology change in history. That this time feels different to the last, right? Like this could be bigger than anything that's come before it, but it's very hard to even put you in, put yourself in the, the shoes of people who were going through like the industrial revolution or something. Yeah. Their manual work was replaced by machinery. It's almost impossible to imagine that. And, but I do imagine it is something similar to this. And it, yeah, like I, I'm just intrigued. It's so hard, like you say, to even imagine the roles of procurement of legal could come through. But there are perhaps a number of roles or tasks, I should say, that aren't being fulfilled at the moment. You know, often in legal, uh, I was reading a Gartner paper the other day that it always seems to talk about non-disclosure agreements, NDAs, being that high volume piece of work, quite low value. It can take up extraordinary amount of anyone's time that kind of comes across it. And you do think like if we can completely get rid of those, we simply still can't, right? There's been standardized contracts across in the US, the stuff being formed in the UK with one NDA. Particularly There's attempts NDA, to do so. Standard. 
Yeah, it still feels like it comes up time and time again. And I know that procurement teams are always working on those kind of agreements because they're typically having those early conversations during the sourcing phase. They're trying to figure out who they want to work with and everyone wants an NDA for any conversation these days. But you can almost imagine now like, oh, if we just got rid of that task and then we got rid of some more of these simple contracts that we're dealing with, what could we focus on? Sharing knowledge, you've kind of alluded to that. Could we work with our partners, our vendors closer to build bigger and better things? You could definitely see that maybe the job loss side of things doesn't sound so scary when we're probably not delivering on the full remit of our roles currently. Yeah, I think that's right. It's hard to picture what the roles are. You know, the NDA is a funny example because it is so highly standardized. So it does sort of leave you scratching your head. Why are we spending a lot of time on this? And actually, I mean, I think if you look, you probably find that we do spend less time on NDAs than in a lot of other contracts. But there's a lot of stuff that, I mean, contracting is not an efficient system. A lot of time is spent. And a lot of that time is heavily burdened by the fact that we don't actually have good data about the value of what we're doing. So we're negotiating, you know, I'm trying to explain to my client why I think that this warranty clause is a bad idea and we shouldn't accept it. And I can't put any data around it. I can tell you these things tend to go badly. All of these clauses have that problem. We have very little data surrounding it. It's another thing that AI could do for us that I think is really on the positive side. And, you know, one sort of route for us to expand as procurement professionals is kind of as data scientists where we add that knowledge that we can use the AI to figure out things like probabilities. How likely is it that this problem clause is going to cause a problem? And what's the likely size of the problem? And can we calculate the likely size of this problem in order to determine, you know, is this worth walking away from the deal from? Because we can also calculate the value of the deal. So it's an example of where you can sort of expand into new areas because of the technology. And you can imagine all sorts of roles for people who start out with good expertise in the profession. You can imagine all sorts of ways we have a lot to contribute to doing that. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I was having a conversation about the sort of risk-based profiling of contract clauses as part of a review. And wouldn't it just be wonderful if you could just, without almost doing anything, just know if that clause is, whether you even need to start negotiating it. Because like, to your point, like, oh, there's this warranty clause. And I know at times, like, this clause can really mess you up if we get this wrong. We should probably try and do something by it. But we just don't have the data around it to make that call. So it almost feels like, when we're reviewing contracts, we have to make more of those risk-averse calls time and time again, which normally means that you're spending more and more time reviewing contract clauses that potentially you never needed to even worry about. An interesting proposition, for sure. Yeah, you know, that point about risk aversion is really helpful. One of the things that makes particularly lawyers do their job less well than they could is risk aversion. It's if you've got standard language that your company or your client has okayed, you're not going to get in any trouble for using it. If your understanding of the clause is low, stick to the standard language and you become risk averse and you won't change anything. The ability to make changes and be flexible requires greater knowledge. You become flexible where you understand the standard clauses and so you can see whether it creates a problem and how much of a problem 
to change it. It's sort of the line that separates really sophisticated practitioners from less sophisticated practitioners that they're able to be flexible. Yeah. Again, AI may increase that flexibility if you can get the explanation in an easy way that doesn't necessarily require that you admit to everyone that you're working with you don't really understand, but you click a button and you get a pretty good analysis of the clause. You become less risk averse. And that's a really exciting thing. You know, that in a way could enhance all of our work. That's a wonderful point. I'm trying to recall, I listen to too many podcasts, David. That's what I've just realized whilst, these, well, whilst you're sharing your thoughts here, because I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about you know, AI as, and I don't want to use the Microsoft word in, but there is going to be a co-pilot, a genius bit of branding yeah. on their part. But it really could elevate everyone's IQ in some way in that it could bring people up to sort of, this was the example or the analogy in the podcast I was listening to, it could bring everyone up to an Einstein level. And for people who are already at that Einstein level, take them into new areas. And when you've considered that potentially AI could enable people who aren't comfortable or aren't trained in contrast to work comfortably with contracts, think about those people who are, like you said, this could impact you. It could impact trained lawyers. You can only imagine what it could do for you. Like the contracts, there seems to be a contract language problem. Contracts typically hard to understand, even for lawyers. At times you can read a contract and think, wow, I have no idea. They're sometimes drafted with litigation in mind, with precedents built up from past decisions. Oh, we know this clause works because in this case they used it and we can get away with using it, even if it's the most convoluted piece of language known to humans. I think that's a wonderful example. Dave, I just wanted to ask though, and firstly, I know that you do write because I've read a number of your articles which are about contracts and AI. You did the history of AI. That's right. The longer piece, that was a good read. I believe you also have a book, right? Yeah, I do. So please talk about all of this quickly. You created a lot of content around this and I think it's super useful and we can attach it all into the show notes here for people to go... I'd be happy to. So yeah, I do a lot of writing in basically two different buckets. I write about history. And so the articles you're talking about are at my website, Pints of History. And they're articles about general purpose technologies, about these major changing technologies and what their past, you know, going back to farming as the ultimate general purpose technologies, what they may tell us about the future of AI. But I've also written books on history. I wrote a novel called The Jericho River, which uses fantasy to teach the entire history of the ancient Middle East and Western civilization. So it's using fantasy as an educational tool, and it's for both adults and teenagers. And I wrote a book called Secrets of Hamenea, which is short stories that teach both history and science for middle readers, for kids, early teenage years. And then on the other side of my writing world is the Tech Contracts Handbook and my writing about technology law. So the Tech Contracts Handbook is a very simple, user-friendly how-to guide on drafting and negotiating contracts about information technology. It's in its third edition. It's published by the American Bar Association, and it's one of their absolute bestsellers. In fact, I think it sells more on Amazon than anyone else, or at least in the top three. I can't remember the situation. Well, it's a nice bit of credibility to have, right? Like having the American Bar Association as your publisher is a yeah, good, it's in good green light. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, you can learn about that book. So you can learn about my history writing at pintsofhistory.com. It's a good website. I spent some time on there the other night. Thank you. Yeah. It's like after we, we spoke a little bit, like I was like, Hey, this guy's a, he's a history nerd. <laughs> that is great. Was, I think history nerd is the right way to put it. Yeah. yeah, it's really fun to do. And then you can learn about my legal writing, the tech contract stuff at techcontracts.com. 
which is also the website for our training company in case anybody out there is interested in training on drafting and negotiating these contracts. Yeah, and equally, I spent some time there. It's some good content on both. No, I appreciate that. I'm always looking for good content in the procurement legal space. And sometimes it can be very hard to come by, especially from like institutions that kind of represent the professions. So I always look for people like yourself making good content out there. All right, I've got two very quick fire questions, David. The first one is, what's one piece of technology that you absolutely could not live without? Software, hardware, pretty relaxed on that. It's Microsoft Word redlining. I mentioned this in my trainings a lot. This is old technology. It's nothing sexy, but I teach all my students, you must become a master at redlining. You must become a master at taking old version of contract, new version of contract, and running an accurate redline. You got to know the twists and turns of redlining and where it doesn't work. For instance, it's not an effective tool for comparing Three generations of a contract is really only for two. But redlining is my magic tool. And so far, there is no artificial intelligence system that has superseded redlining, at least in my work, as the most useful tool. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> I say that, and I'll be quite open about this, in that I think I could learn to redline far better. I've almost learned it's not something you learn when you're just studying law, unless you go on to do the practical vocational courses. And then when you kind of get into the workplace, it's something you kind of, from my experience, learn from other people. And those other people yeah. have learned from other people who do it rather poorly. And yeah, so I'm with you. A skill, I think Nedo also from Contract Nerds, she's, she's got a book on that. And she seems to swear by learning how to redline as the, a good tool to have in your belt. And yeah, I'm with you. I don't think AI has got close to you to replacing a person on that yet. That's a good area to kind of end on. But I do just want to ask one other question, which is, sure. we normally ask, and it's kind of weird, David, so bear with me. We normally ask, I'm a procurement genie. You have one wish. What would that be? And that wish could be procurement contracts, an interlink between it. What's one wish that you have for sort of those professions? I think it goes back to the frustration I mentioned that I can never put a number or rarely put a number on my prediction. I mean, this is a very dorky yeah. thing. I think I should be asking for a million dollars and retirement and, you know, who knows. But no, it's it's that... I cannot put accurate information down about the probability of a contract yeah. causing a problem. If a genie could grant me that power, it would be wonderful. I agree. Like this is, like I was just said, like there's something that's kind of on my mind at the moment. Just that one area could really save so much time and headaches and just back and forth conversations. It would be wonderful yeah. to find a way to address that. And I think the key to it is trying to figure out good data. But then you have the, the bigger problem of where do we get that data from? And to do that. But Davis, so this has I'm been... not negotiating a clause that turns out yeah. not to matter. Yeah, it's dreamlike for people who <laughs> deal with a lot of contracts. David, it's been a, an absolute pleasure having you on and just nerding out about contracts, procurement and AI. It's kind of my favorite thing to do at the moment. Thank you for stopping by. My on. pleasure too. Thank you for having me. Procurement Reimagined is brought to you by Gatekeeper. To find out more about Gatekeeper and how our vendor and contract lifecycle management solution is delivering visibility, control, and compliance to our customers, visit www.gatekeeperhq.com. And then make sure to search for Procurement Reimagined in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that podcasts are found. 
make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Gatekeeper, thanks for listening.